Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And this is The Ready State. You got it! You better stop it! You got it! You got it! Hey everyone, welcome back to The Ready State. We've got a great episode for you today, and it's going to tie together some of the some of the conversations we've been talking about. Mainly is how do we create really stable, really capable young athletes and develop those athletes into really strong, capable, risk-taking people. One of the hallmarks of the relationship that Juliet and I have is that it is based on fear. <laughs> now, let me let me explain that a little bit. Turns Not really out, sure what you're talking about, but uh, turns let's hear out, it. Juliet and I met at the World Championships for whitewater paddling in an environment that was chaotic and frankly fear-inducing with some of the biggest whitewater in the world. So the, one of the questions is, how do we introduce that level of discomfort and a little bit of fear? How do we indoctrinate our kids so they're fear adapted? Well, it turns out that when we look at that, what we're really talking about is creating a real well-rounded person. And one of the most well-rounded athletes we know, who also is a master of dealing with fear and pain, turns out to be one of Juliet's best friends, and that's Rebecca Rush. Rebecca Rush, also known as the queen of pain, is one of the baddest athletes on earth. The litany of accomplishments she has athletically sort of defies logic. She was a whitewater national and world champion. She competed in tons of adventure racing, uh, cross-country skiing events, and she didn't even really come to her main sport, mountain biking, until her 40s, where she went on to win the Leadville 100 four times, which is maybe the worst race ever. 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 And she is a three-time 24-hour solo mountain biking world champ champion. She is one of the toughest athletes that I have ever met. Everyone, this is a great conversation with one of the strongest, toughest women we've ever met. Juliet kicks off this conversation. How are you, lady? I'm pretty good. I'm, yeah, I'm stoked. Um, okay. Uh, okay, why don't we start, Kels? Okay. I'll start. What, you know, yeah. Why don't we start by just saying how you know Rebecca, because we know Rebecca a lot of ways. No, I, I would like to ask her how she knows us. Oh, <laughs> there you go. I flip that back because she's the interviewee. Rebecca. Okay. Rebecca, I'm how do you know yeah. us? How, how do we know each other? Oh. Well, um, we, we all know each other from um, the U.S. men's and women's whitewater rafting team. And I, the first time I met Kelly was uh, running on a road in Chile. Um, we were the only motivated ones up early doing some cross training. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean, you guys invited me on your team, and I when I didn't know how to paddle, which was which was pretty cool. I had no whitewater experience, so um, I got thrown into a boat of some of the most amazing people, including you. And I I believe I gave you the nickname Meat. You did, um, <laughs> which has stuck because I had never met anyone as like beefy and solid and just as you. I was like, oh my god, that, I want to be in a boat with that girl. Um, and then I met Kelly and he was running and I kind of had this like little crush on Kelly, like, Oh man, the dudes on the U S whitewater team are really hot. Um, <laughs> and there were, there were a bunch of hotties. So yeah, but then, um, unfortunately Kelly, well, not unfortunately, Kelly fell for you instead of me on that trip. And, uh, the rest, <laughs> the rest is, is history. history. <laughs> well, just to add, just to add to that story, um, from our end, I remember hearing that you were this badass outrigger paddler. You'd paddled Molokai and then we actually got a visual of you and we're like, good decision. Good decision. <laughs> that lady is jacked. Um, yeah. So uh, nobody calls me meat though. <laughs> 
I think there's probably like 99.9% of women on earth would not want that nickname. And I, <laughs> I think know. it's awesome. So, know. you know, what does that say? It was meant as a total compliment. Yes. That's why and that's too. how I take it. <laughs> What's, what I think is interesting about the two of you guys <clears throat> is that, you know, I have known you as an adventure racer. We've known you as an outrigger pilot. We've known you as a uh, whitewater pilot. But the, the hallmark of the two of you guys particularly is interesting because it both goes back to your, your moniker, your, your nom de plume, the queen of pain. Because Juliet is also the only other woman I've ever met who can out-suffer anyone. The two of you guys Except together Rebecca are Rush. freakish <laughs> in your capacities to suffer. Now, maybe that's a really good jumping off place <clears throat> on this conversation about fear and anxiety and suffering. Because the last time we talked, you were saying you know, one of the reasons you race is to get to the finish line so you can meet the better version of yourself, right? Mm-hmm. But I have honestly never met a person who has more pre-game, pre-badass anxiety than you. You are it in terms of, you know, feeling anxious before you go out and do these Herculean efforts. And let me be honest with everyone who's listening. Your efforts are insane. I mean, like the things that you do, the distances, the efforts, the the positions you put yourself in, rightfully so, you have some anxiety about these things. But also your ability to suffer and your anxiety about these things really creates, for me, this interesting dynamic. And I think that's where we should lead off about, you know, who Rebecca is and, and how she manages all these things. Okay. Is that a question? No, was, I, no, I, was, I, was I was setting Kelly that up for Juliet. Kelly was looking okay. at me, waiting for me to, but I was like, well, setting it up for what? Okay. Okay. Well, I, you know, this episode's about fear. So let's talk about how you define fear. Um, you know, I actually looked that up because, I mean, fear is such a big word. Um, and I, I will kind of, going off what Kelly was saying, I, I'm one of the most afraid professional athletes I know. And, you know, if you look at my resume and people, when I, my book came out, people were like, read it and were like, I can't believe you were scared. Like you seem like <laughs> such a badass, or you've done all these amazing things. That's, you know, I would have thought you'd be fearless. Um, but I'm actually, people are surprised to learn that I'm, I'm actually a big scaredy cat. I always have been a little bit of a wuss. Um, even my mom will, will say I was, um, even as a kid. Um, and so I've always been fearful. And so, like Kelly said, I'm one of the most nervous people often before a race because, um, because I do have a lot of fear. So when you said, let's talk about fear, I'm like, okay, I got a lot to say. Yeah, you're like, I have a lot of fear. Well, um, but what... I actually looked up the definition because I'm like, well, for me, it encompasses so many things. And you even say fear and your hands start to sweat and you start thinking of um, previous experiences. But, you know, I, I looked it up and it, it's defined by Webster's unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, like likely to cause pain or a threat. And mm-hmm. I started thinking about, the words in there, the belief that something's going to be dangerous or cause pain or a threat. And as we'll get into, I mean, so much of what I'm afraid of or what fear is, is wrapped into the brain um, instead of the body. Well, and also just hearing that definition, it's pretty reasonable that you feel fear before your events because <laughs> they, they are dangerous and you are going to experience pain. <laughs> so it seems like actually a totally reasonable reaction to have before you do what you do, right? Well, and I think this really sets us up because you now have, uh, it's shocking to say, decades of world championships in your belt. But on the other, the, the piece around that is you know it's, it's expected. You know you're going to feel anxiety and you still have this history of doing okay and, and, and putting down really, really, really extraordinary feats of strength and endurance. 
How do you make that switch over? Do you, do you have a process now or is it, are you shocked by it every single time? Um, shocked by feeling fear when I'm at a starting line and, and those kinds of shocked by that sensation. Yeah. I mean, are you like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe how afraid I am and I shouldn't be afraid. I mean, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's happened to you mean just because she's so experienced and well, and, such but, a pro. but, but if you know, this is her common experience, it's also happened to her because she's, she's done so many extraordinary world championship races. So she many actually races. knows what's coming. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot wrapped into that, into that question. Um, yes, I, I, I often feel fear at the start line, but it's different. Anxiety and fear are two different things. Like there, you know, I used the first two Leadvilles I did, I was afraid because I didn't know what was coming. I didn't know my abilities. I didn't trust myself. The The second two Leadvilles that I won, I, I stood at the start line and for the first time in my life, I wasn't afraid. And even Greg, my husband, he's like, I was worried something was wrong because you weren't freaking out like you normally are at the start line. <laughs> and because... I was the most prepared I'd ever been. So I knew what the time I could do on the race. I knew that I was one of the best women there. And if I had a good race, I'd be on the podium. And, and I wasn't afraid. And so a lot of the way that, you know, my strategy over these decades of feeling scared, you know, almost every day of the week, um, the strategy is in experience and putting myself in that place over and over and over again so that I know I know what's going to happen. Um, to me, fear is when you don't know what's going to happen. So the more that I can control, I know my fitness, I know this, the course, or I've studied this map, or I've looked at this whitewater line, the more I can actually try to understand and take away the unknown, the less scared I feel. So I've learned that that process, I don't believe you can ever take away fear or conquer fear or have no fear. I believe you can only control your response to it. And that's what I think as a more mature athlete, I've started to learn and understand and, and sort of adapt to fear in that way. So all I have to do is race the Leadville 100. Two times. Four times. <laughs> four times. And you're good. Climb the walls. You're done with right. the whole fear thing after that. Win the Raid Galois. <laughs> that's, that's it. I'll finally get my head around it. One of the conversations that we have around the dinner table is that we don't see being afraid as a, as a bad thing. In fact, one of the problems we think is that most people aren't afraid. I mean, we, and yeah. so when they get afraid in other aspects of their life, they don't have a model or template. And one more things we're trying to do with sport is sort of dose out that fear, dose out that uncomfortableness, that fear of the unknown, the uncertainty, so that you can come back and be a, a little bit more functional human. You know, the conversation we're having a lot is how do we get our kids a little bit scared all the time, you know? And, and I think it's interesting because you know, you have this history of these huge events and do you feel like you handle, translate that fear in that physical sense or the managing of that anxiety or the managing of the uncertainty? Has that been able to translate over in your like everyday mortal life? It's yeah, it's totally transfer. I mean, I t I'll tell you buying a house or, or signing a mortgage, you know, committing to something for 30 years of my life with a, you know, unknown paycheck and, you know, no like retirement plan or whatever. That's way scarier to me than, um, you know, climbing El Cap a hundred percent because, because it's unknown to me and going back to the, the fear of the unknown. I don't think fear is a bad thing either. Um, I totally agree with you on that. I think it's our response to fear that can either overwhelm and overtake us um, or we can 
learn to manage it and become fear adaptive. But in my everyday life, the lessons I learned from sport is absolutely that if you prepare, you understand the variables, you ask yourself, well, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? Okay, can I help alleviate that? Can I plan for that? Those kinds of strategies that you use as an athlete to harness your fear um, absolutely have carried over into my regular life and things like purchasing a home or, or or deciding to live in my car or whatever whatever you know life risk I may have taken, um, I evaluate it in almost the same way. The only thing that's different is I'm not physically afraid. You know, um, that sort of like fear of falling or 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 fear of heights or any of those sorts of things that I think we're innately born with. Um, so the everyday life stuff, I'm not afraid in the physical sense, um, but it is still the same sort of planning and strategizing for me. Do you think, or how would you think it would be a good way for people to sort of get this, this dose of uncertainty? Cause when we, I mean, it is 72 degrees all the time in my you house. You mean like regular people? Yeah. Regular house. I mean, yeah. I go into my little SUV. I'm in my nice little bubble wrap. You know, my coffee is prepared the same way every single day. You know, how, how can people go about, what, what do you think people should be able to do to be able to maybe, because this, this fear has given you so much more richness. Like you are one of the most badass women we know. And I, I, whether I like it or not, I mean, this aspect of you and your challenging this makes you really fun and cool. <laughs> Thanks. You think I'm cool. That's really amazing. Um, uh, go ahead. Yeah. No, what were you going to say? Well, just, you know, how, how can average people... You know, yeah. take a page out of Rebecca Rush. What do you, what are you conscious of? Or are you just like I just do what I do? No, I am. I'm very conscious of it because I think it's part of the evolution of me as an athlete as well. It's you know, I started in running and went to rock climbing, um, paddling, adventure racing, mountain biking. Um, I think, and the reason I've changed so many times instead of you know, being a runner my whole entire life is because I like jumping. I, I like jumping into the unknown, like you said, putting a little bit of uncertainty in my life. And so I think one way everyday people can do that and not that athletes are everyday people, um, but is changing sports. You know, the, the people who mountain bike and say, oh, well, I don't ride on the road or I don't run or I don't swim. I think anytime we can sort of throw ourselves into something different, um, you know, we evolve on the other end. One, you get stronger physically. If you're not just staying on one sport doing the same repetitive motion over and over again. But, but two, you're dealt with, you know, the unknown. And so I, I would think, you know, say you're going to challenge a really good athlete, um, to, to be better. I think this is why adventure racing developed was such a like PhD and sports for me. Um, and Red Bull does this too. They'll take, you know, a snowboard athlete or somebody and put them out of their element, put them in the woods and make them navigate home. Um, so anytime you take a high achiever, whether it's someone in business or whatever, and put them into unknown situation and take away their iPad or whatever tools, whether it's a snowboard, take away the normal tools and give somebody a problem they've got to adapt to, inevitably you're going to grow and learn. And so for everyday people, I think always, you know, it's sort of a Buddhist mentality of, of always being a beginner's mind, like always trying new things. Um, because if we do get in that same rut, like you said, Kelly, um, we don't change. You don't have to develop any new skills because your body and your mind aren't asking for anything different. So, uh, a minute ago, you mentioned the phrase fear adapted. Do you think an athlete can train themselves physically to be fear adapted? 
um, to prepare to sort of counteract that? Is that a thing? I absolutely think people can be fear adapted. And I think it all goes into mental training. Um, because again, going back to the definition of, you know, what is fear? It's the belief that something, something bad is going to happen to you. And so, you know, that feeling when you feel afraid, it first starts in your mind, like, oh, what if I fall on this rock climber? What if, what if I can't do this? And then eventually your mind lets it go to your body and your palms start to sweat and your breathing changes and you've allowed it. The first step is it enters your mind. And when you've allowed it to then take over the physical, that's the part that you can train the, the fear adaptation of not letting, you know, that devil that's on your shoulders say, well, you can't run that drop. You're not good enough. Um, learning to not listen to that voice in the head. So I do think mental trainings, um, kind of how you do get yourself fear adapted and getting, it's kind of like, if you look at military training, this is a lot of what they do, you know, like for, for the Navy SEALs, put them in the water, you know, make them stay there. They don't know what time they're coming out. They're freezing cold. They don't know when their next meal is coming from. Um, Wait a minute. Isn't that, that's like your Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But those those things work. I mean, it's tried and true in the military and adventure racing training. Um, and, and you can learn to sort of deal with the unknown, which is, in my mind, dealing with fear. Because the more you know, the less you fear. It's, as soon as you aren't, have, aren't doing something for the first time, you start to learn strategies to deal with that situation. So I think one of the things that's so rad about your personal and athletic background is just how diverse it is. And speaking of fear, you've pretty much taken on every single um, primal fear that a human being might fear, might experience, which is fear of heights. You were obviously a rock climber, fear of drowning, <laughs> um, doing all this quite crazy whitewater rafting with me, fear of fire. You're a firefighter. Um, so first of all, uh, that's amazing. And you're crazy. Um, and, uh, but are all those fears, you know, when you think back to experiencing all those things, do you, um, have the same level of fear, uh, when it, with respect to all those main primal fears? And if so, if not, how did you approach those fears differently? There, I mean, there are a couple of different, like rock climbing. And this is actually interesting. Um, as a kid, I would have dreams. I'd wake up, I'd had falling dreams a lot like this that I was falling out of my bed. And so it's kind of interesting. And then I also, as a kid, wouldn't get in the pool and swim. So it's funny that I ended up doing whitewater um, <laughs> as well. <laughs> um, but what's interesting about those three that you mentioned, climbing, whitewater, and firefighting, um, whitewater and fire, water and fire are very similar. So those are situations where you actually aren't necessarily in control of the medium, you know, fire behavior and water behavior. And that's where you're almost a guest in those situations. And so dealing with fear in that situation is very much about studying what the fire or the water might do or what the line might look like. Um, and they're also, in my experiences, those were team situations. And surrounding myself with people way better than I was was actually a very good strategy for you know, being able to deal with your fear. And that happens in firefighting as well. You're always in a team and, you know, you're always with another really solid person on the crew. So the team aspect of fear is actually, if you're with a great crew, it actually really helps me in my, in my situations, calm me down and go, okay, well, at least I got, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen if I mess up? I at least have these five other women in this boat here um, who are going to grab me and pull me back in. 
And so I think that that's really, really pretty powerful is working in a team to help conquer, conquer fear. But then the rock climbing, you know, it's, that's a static medium. And so for me, the most scared I ever really have been is often rock climbing because it's a medium that doesn't move. So the medium is predictable and it's you that are the one like, oh, am I strong enough? Can my fingers hold on? And it's interesting when I was really scared climbing, I would actually smell different. Like it was the smell of fear. And I noticed it whenever I was rock climbing because I think I was so primally scared all the time. <laughs> I just want to say it is a totally proven method and it's something I live by. Surround myself by very f- competent women. Turns out, <laughs> turns out to be, they save me all the time. I can't recommend that enough. <laughs> me too. At least five of them. <laughs> at least. At least. I mean, this is how I met Juliet, right? I was swimming. We just got our asses pounded and then you guys paddled up and saved us. And I was like, oh, oh, allegory, oh, allegory for the next oh. rest of my life. <laughs> she saved you. That's really awesome. Uh, well, this is interesting because you've been on all women teams. Mm-hmm. And you've been solo and you've kind of, you know, in a, in a climbing, you know, partnership, but you've also done a lot of adventure racing with men. And that really, I had, to, you know, I know some of your, your former, you know, racing partners. And do you now believe men and women handle fear differently? I do. And I actually, um, yeah, I, I, if you think of, and it's actually, I found a study, this is scientifically proven, but, um, I do tend to think that men are more, they, you know, they're more like fight or flight. They're going to get aggressive when they're scared. Um, and women, I think tend to huddle up and they need a hug, you know, and sort of want to kind of curl into a ball and hide. Um, and there's actually uh, a study in Australia that was done that that said men and women's response, they've, they've kind of proven that we do respond differently. Um, to stress and it's because of a certain, a certain hormone, you know, that men have and women don't. So it, it's something that I thought all along is, and I'd see it in the teams often if I was really scared or I was afraid, um, you know, my three male teammates are usually yelling, Oh, get in, what's wrong with you? You know, and they're Australian. So again, they're even <laughs> a little bit more yelling and swearing at you. Um, and oftentimes all I needed was a hug or somebody to say, you know what, it's going to be okay. Come on. And to take my hand. And that would have been a better strategy for me. And then on the flip side, when those guys were scared, you know, if I came up and hugged them and like, look, you're going to be okay, Shane, (laughs) um, they probably would push me off and that wouldn't have been what they needed. And, and it, and it is kind of shown now in the study. It's really interesting. Um, I was reading about it in Huffington post that we do respond differently And so I think that that's really important to think about one with teaching, you know, um, and what motivates people when they're scared. And, and then also, you know, in a teammate, you know, if you've got a male or female teammate and one of my, one of the best adventure racers in the world, John Howard, he always said to me that he thought the strongest team would be an equal ratio of two male to female, um, because we do respond differently and we actually support each other in different ways. Well, you know, Juliet has done a really good job of enlightening me around sort of blind spots. Like when Juliet's alarm goes off in her head, I'm, you know, I, I now have trained myself to be like, oh, I wonder what Juliet's seeing that I don't see, which is, <laughs> which is considerable. But even what you just spoke to is the allegory when the first, when the, when the three of us were first on the river together, the very first day, paddled down to Mundaka and you got, it's huge and scary and class five and it's, 
Not when you scout it from the road, it's not big. <laughs> we scouted from about a mile up, and it didn't look that big. And, of course, we're all a little bit nervous, and you guys pulled over. And it sounds like, you know what you did? You had a hug. You had a chat. You made a plan. Mm-hmm. And you know what the guys did? were like, bro, we're doing this for bros. And we got our asses. Like, that's the worst beating I've ever taken to date, ever. When I was bouncing on the bottom of the river, and it was black, and I was being crushed, oh. I was like... A, I had to tighten my life jacket. Thanks, Juliet. And B, I was like, I wonder what those women saw that we didn't see. And then you saved us and our and our so, carbon fire pals. But so, I mean, I think you really you bring it up. I mean, I, it's interesting, you know, uh, that that reaction, you know, really does it does speak. I mean, the, you know, b- charging blindly in versus you know reasonably approaching and, and being prepared. So one did of the, any of the guys yeah. in the boat is mention, hey, maybe we should pull over and scout? Or yeah. was everybody just like, rah? And well, like Shane, Shane and I were smart enough to go, hey, you know, you know the <laughs> girls are scouting. I wonder what they don't know. And, and then Larry was like, whatever, girls. <laughs> and Shane and I were like, well, I can okay. swim. You can swim. We can swim. We're fine. Um, you know, so uh, one of the most fun things for me about reading your book was learning all these little details that I didn't know about experiences you had doing the raid. And of course I watched you on the eco challenge and was with you for a lot of the adventures, but it was really cool for me to read and kind of learn some details about these, you know, major experiences. I just like totally ate it all up. If you uh, needed to highlight two or three big moments in your career that you think made you tough and that stand out for you, what would those be? Oh man. Um, there's, yeah, I mean, I definitely think a a really big one was going, you know, and on that paddling trip with you in Chile and being way in over my head. And, you know, that was a big learning experience for me of really tackling fear and trusting other people and, you know, being on a fast track to learning. And I was pretty proud of how that all went. Um, and yeah, I, I learned so much. So that was a big turning point for me going into something that I just really like had never done before. Um, not like that. No whitewater experience. <laughs> um, so that was for sure a highlight. Um, you know, swimming the Grand Canyon with some other mutual friends of ours and paddling partners. That was a big one. Um, I would say the biggest, scariest experiences, though, since we're talking about fear so much is, I mean, definitely... Um, you know, my adventure racing experiences of being, you know, cold and afraid and lost and in, in another country, another world. Um, those are some really covered in leeches experience covered in leeches. Yeah. Pooping was... a two foot worm. Oh True or false? yeah. That's one of my favorite stories about you. Nermal. I named him Nermal. <laughs> the worm. Cause Hey, Borneo. <laughs> You know, <laughs> you know what's interesting. I actually, the the hair just was standing up on the back of my neck, like it does every time we talk about this story. Um, recently, someone put up some photos <laughs> of what, the Downriver final in Chile, <clears throat> and I was shocked to see how many there. Was, I saw a lot of photos from the same run, and there were multiple times in the run where we were on the verge of disaster. And I see those photos now, and I was like, oh. You know, give me one drop on the other side, and we're over, and we're swimming again. And yet, that run felt completely solid to me. And then from the outside, seeing the actual photo, photographic proof, of like how many times we nearly flipped, how we swam. You know, we just where the boat is totally vertical; it's just no big deal. Do you think that a lot of times your consciousness comes 
at a cost because you're actually aware of the results? And do you think as you become more experienced, you, because you, there's this dual-edged sword, because on the one hand, you have a lot more experience, you know what to expect, you know how prepared you are, but on the other hand, you know that like people die, that you know people have to get rescued, that there are real consequences. How do you manage that duality in your experience of one, having more experience and being prepared, and two, really knowing that there are actual consequences? Because when I look at those photos, I'm like, I was not aware that there are consequences. I think that's a really good point is that, that you know, and your team, you are all super, you know, world-class paddlers. Um, really elite athletes, they don't view themselves as risk takers. You know, if you talk to Felix Baumgartner or, you know, anyone who's doing something that from the outside looks quote-unquote crazy, to them it's not crazy what they're doing because they're so skilled at what they do that – they're not afraid in that moment because they're thinking, you know, I, I've been here before. I know I've got this. And so y you didn't feel like you guys were out of control in that run because you did have it. And you weren't afraid of the consequence because you knew you had the skill to back it up. And you did, you know. And even though the photos might show these risky moments where you almost lost it, you guys didn't. So it's not a duality for me. I don't go out on a mountain bike ride thinking, oh, man, people die every day on their bike. I go out in, in with a totally different mindset, um, you know, for meditation or getting in the zone or, you know, physical and mental well-being. Um, so I would I would bet if you talk to Will Gadd or any, anyone who's a very elite athlete, they don't see themselves as as a risk taker. So you uh, you alluded to this earlier and I'll. Uh introduce it by saying it's one of the great regrets of my life that I decided to go to law school instead of go on this adventure <laughs> with you. Um, and that is uh, you and Julie Munger and Kelly Kalafatich boogie boarded the entire Grand Canyon. Can you tell us a little wait, bit wait, about self that? Self-support. So Self-support. Like, it's not like you got off and there was a shower. And a yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And it was winter. Well, I think they only gave us the permit for winter because they didn't think we would do it. <laughs> and um, Julie had been applying for this permit to be able to riverboard the Grand Canyon. She'd been applying for 10 years. So be long before she met me, met you, she'd been trying to, to put this trip together. This is a 300-mile um, trip for people to understand. And it's in the dark of winter in winter. the canyon. It is and not the water warm. is cold, old. 40 degrees. The water was 40 degrees. Um, so we were wearing uh, wetsuit, double dry suits. You know, it took us like an hour and 15 minutes in the morning to actually put all of the clothing on <laughs> to be able to stay submerged in 40 degree water for a number of hours. And then we'd have to get out at lunchtime and do a run to warm up and then put the put the wetsuits and dry suits back on. But yeah, we swam the Grand Canyon um, on riverboard, self-supported. So that meant we were towing. Um, towing everything behind us there was nobody on it we, we saw one other person which if you've ever been in the grand canyon that never happens but it was winter and they gave us the permit again because i don't think they thought we would do it um and i wouldn't have done it if i had known what julie and kelly were asking me to do um <laughs> I, I was so naive and i I really had no whitewater experience. I didn't know what I was doing, and I, you know, I was figured they couldn't find anyone else. But I'm, they asked me because they knew I wouldn't quit. You know that I would sort of hang in there and be a fast learner. But what they didn't know is that I had already made plans of like, okay, and this is how I conquer my fear. Okay, what would happen if I get in there? I I can't do it. I'm not doing it. And I just made a plan. I had the maps that I would just walk out. I'd I'd get my way out of the Grand Canyon. Um, 
one way or another, I could walk out. So I had a backup plan, and that was how I dealt with some of the fear of going on that trip. Um, and it took us uh, 21 days, I think. Um, you know, I think I lost 10 pounds. You know, we were freezing, starving, and I'd never been in whitewater that big, laying on my stomach. And if, you know, if anyone's been in a boat, you know, you lay on your stomach, and all of a sudden those waves get a lot bigger than when you're sitting up in a raft. Yeah, um, you can't see what's coming. You know, we were, we were, <laughs> ju- we were just it's in so Kauai scary. with Laird and Gabby, hanging out with Laird Hamilton. He was talking about his first trip on the Grand Canyon. <clears throat> they had a, some map from 1979, and the people who were experienced, and they flipped, and all of a sudden he was like, what the hell? It was like 18 days of really grindy, scary, sketchy feelings. And this is yeah. a true waterman. What yeah. I think is interesting about this story is that from a physical feat of you swimming the Grand Canyon and being self-supported, it's pretty amazing. And then to get kind of get ahead of that, and then you had an accident with a stove that literally <laughs> added a whole nother layer of this. Can you talk about that? And did that make things better, same, or worse? Yeah. Was that the moment where you thought about executing your hike out plan? <laughs> this stove, and if anyone wants to watch, there is a documentary. You can watch all these stories, um, 300 women, uh, three women, 300 miles. Um, it's actually really good. I watched it not too long ago. Um, but yeah, you know, I was all getting all cocky, not cocky, but I'd made it through my first couple of rapids and we got a couple of days in and I was like, all right, I think I can do this. Figured out how to put my dry suit on without, you know, pulling my hair out. Um, and then I, you know, I was getting it all down and we were getting our system going. Um, and then we had an accident with a stove and I burned my entire hand. The stove blew up. Um, it wasn't user error. I swear, uh, burned my whole hand. Um, you know, blistering, it was pretty bad. And, um, so I ended up then not being able to use the, use that hand because it was in so much pain, barely hold onto the riverboard. So what it, I did think I was gonna one ruin the trip or have to get out or you know go seek medical help. Um, so we kind of swaddled it up and you know I gritted my teeth. But I I actually think that in a way maybe the hand thing was good because the white water was so scary to me that having an injured hand actually gave me something else to think about. It was a diversion technique. <laughs> And it's like, I thought more about that or, oh, just hold on to the board instead of, oh, I don't know if I can do this. So it's, it, you know, we can only fill so many thoughts in our head at one time. And that is a, a strategy I use when I'm afraid is I try to fill, you know, fill my head with something other than saying, oh, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. And so I might do math in a long race. I'll convert miles to kilometers and, you know, try to do math when I'm really tired um, you or are such a nerd, the queen it's of so nerd. Weird. Or look at scenery. You know, it's like if you're riding a bike in a beautiful place, you don't feel the pain in your legs as if you were sitting indoors on a trainer staring at a gray wall. No, that's true. And it's interesting that the I wondered how you, you dealt with the burn in your hand. Because, <laughs> you know, at some point you either think, well, I'm going to have to hike out because it's a medical emergency, or you think there's no way I can let this my team down. And what we when we talk to a lot of people about – you know, fear and in the military and all the groups we see, it's not fear of personal death. It's fear of failure of a team. And I think there's some dynamic mm-hmm. there that really does buttress us. And, you know, you, you said about even about, you know, organizing your brain around another task. Oftentimes when George is really scared, I've my, my oldest daughter, I've had her try to coach her younger daughter or become a surrogate or an advocate. As soon as she's taking care of someone else, mm-hmm. she stopped being afraid. 
Mm-hmm. That's really interesting dynamic. Yeah. And I've had that with climbing, you know, when I, you know, when I first learned to climb, I learned from somebody who was much better than me, kind of a mentor. And then, um, sort of the tables turn. And the first time I took a girlfriend climbing and I was the more experienced one, it definitely, I had to rise to the occasion. And all of a sudden I wasn't the one asking questions. I was the one being expected to give an answer. And so, yeah, it was pretty cool. And I had to act like I was not afraid because my girlfriend was new to climbing and, and so she was afraid. So if I acted afraid, you know, so you do kind of have to fake it sometimes, but it works as a teacher or a teammate or somebody taking care of somebody else. I had, when I was working as a river guide, especially when I was doing harder rivers, like class four and five rivers, I had to fake it like (laughs) so much. I would get in with these people who were 25 years older than me. And I just had to pretend like I was like completely in charge, not afraid that I was going to own this whole day. And you know, that actually translated really well to me and lots of other things I've done. Like anytime I have to public speak or when I was still practicing law and I had to appear in court, you know, on the inside, I was like, wow, does everyone know that I'm a total poser um, (laughs) wearing a suit and have no idea what I'm talking about? But I was able to put on this face of like, I got this and it works. (laughs) Anyway, um, it does work. It does work. It does work. Um, And a lot of boys do it, by the way. That's their strategy of just, you know, Um, anyway. Hey, guys, we just want to take a little break and let you know about Rebecca's amazing documentary that came out in 2017 called Blood Road. You could watch it today on iTunes. It explores her journey biking the entire Ho Chi Minh Trail in Vietnam and Laos, searching for the remains of her father who was shot down as a pilot in the Vietnam War in the early 70s. It's an amazing emotional story where you really learn a lot about who Rebecca is as a human. Yeah, it's really a nice way of tying together unknown, risk-taking, her ability to suffer, ability to be a well-rounded athlete. It's its a really wonderful story. You should check it out. Let's get back to the show. Uh, you know, we work with a ton of athletes who make gazillions of dollars, have tons of support and, re- and resources around them. Um, your career as a professional athlete obviously is a little bit different. You know, you chose to be involved in sports where um, you not only don't make a lot of money, you don't make any money. Um, but all the probably, cliff bars you can eat. All the cliff bars you can eat and probably some free mountain bikes. But um, I know that you've lived in your car. Um, I know that obviously you're a firefighter as well. But, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, your decision to s- decide to choose this as a life path and what the struggles were and, you know, what, what that whole scenario was for you. Um. You know, this path wasn't really planned out. I I was sort of just going with the flow. Um, But, you know, one of my biggest fears is is fear of missing out and, like, what's around the next corner and wanting to know, like, well, what if I don't get to do that thing? Um, So a lot of what has been steering me throughout my career um, and the choices I've made to be an athlete and climb and live out of my car, um, those have been because I just want to see what's next or you know, what's out there. And so it really has been a bit of an exploration, a little bit of a guided tour, but, um, yeah, mostly an exploration and it's been great. And there, there have been, I'm, you know, like I said, my biggest, the scariest thing I've done was sign a mortgage in my house because I don't make gazillions of dollars. Um, but you know, I have a roof over my head and I'm super excited about it, but so yeah, there've been sacrifices, but the huge payoffs, I mean, it's, you know, I'm super rich in experience, you know, maybe not in dollars, but definitely in experience. And I've been able to 
unlike maybe some professional athletes, if you're in a very strict, you know, like world cup skiing or something, um, they know what races they have to go to. And I've been able to sort of guide my path a little bit more the way that I want to and choose some different things because I have sort of taken the path less traveled, not to be too cliche. One of the things, it's interesting you mentioned that because one of the things that's been sort of a hallmark of a lot of the world's elite athletes that I know who high level competitors is that their career doesn't end. They start to do less sort of formal competition and they start taking on sort of bigger unknown risk. Like you recently rode your bike up this little mountain called Kilimanjaro, (laughs) right? And you just were in, I think, South America riding your bike. And, you know, you, you end up, I've seen that you've made a transition away from sort of peak events to actually a lot more unknown where you're taking more adventure travel adventure sport and then talking about it enjoying experiencing it but it, was that a conscious decision or is that do you think a natural evolution where people are like hey you know this formalized peaks fear peak you know experience now i can translate that into maybe adventuring yeah i think it is an evolution and i mean it's a choice of what's interesting me at the time, but, but it's, it's a for sure a combination of of all the things I've done, this more exploratory sort of riding. I mean, if I didn't have the really strict training fitness and from training for Leadville's and 24 hour racing, you know, I went from being a really crappy mountain biker to a pretty decent one. And so I had to, had to put in that time, but now the gift of what that's given me, the evolution is, is yeah, to go be able to take my bike up Kilimanjaro or to ride the Ho Chi Minh trail in Laos and Vietnam. Um, but if I didn't have the sort of the foundation groundwork of all the more formal physical training, um, I wouldn't have had the, I wouldn't have had all the skills to go on these big exploratory sort of adventures. And those are really exciting to me because it is going back into that unknown and not knowing what's around the next corner. I mean, I loved racing Ladville and I knew down to the minute, like what time I should be at this river crossing or that turnaround point. And that's a really cool, you know, strict training. Um, but really what I'm into right now is, is the exploration and going places and, you know, maybe Julia will come on my next adventure somewhere. Yes, please. Okay. First, you have <laughs> you to teach me it. how to um, mountain bike a switchback, and then I'm ready. Okay, just a switchback, no problem. Fit- fitness is not a problem. Just switchbacks. Um, <laughs> just, so, just technical skill. I'm just, good. Just a little switchback. It's fine. Um, so I saw, and by the way, I was so stoked and high tending you from California on Facebook the other day that you did a TEDx talk in Sun Valley, and I'm pretty oh. sure if I'm remembering your Facebook post correctly, you said that it was maybe the scariest thing you've ever done. Um, above all of the um, what some people would call insane athletic feats you've done in your life, so tell tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it, oh my gosh! Just when you when as soon as you said you did a TEDx, I got this feeling in my throat that was like, <gasps> yeah, it was um, it was really scary because for a couple of reasons. One, I wasn't prepared, and that goes back to a story I said at the very beginning of you know. I'm the least afraid when I'm the most prepared. And so one, I wasn't prepared for TEDx and it's not, you know, I'm okay with public speaking, but this was very much, um, putting yourself out there and in front of my local community, which is harder than actually speaking to a group of strangers. Um, and then also I was talking about a really personal story about my dad and, you know, going on a bike ride to, to go find the place where he was shot down. And, 
so put all of that together and I was very uncomfortable <laughs> to say the least and super stressed out. And, um, but when I finished it and I did it, it's that elated feeling of knowing you worked really hard and you, you put yourself out on the limb and you know, you got through it and you survived. And so it was definitely a scary, but a huge growth sort of experience for me a couple of weeks ago. Let me ask you this. So awesome. You know, Juliet and I firmly believe that our our childhood, young adulthood, taking risk has set us up to take other risk. Like we are really, mm -hmm. I remember being in PT school in some gnarly practical final examination and everyone is like, people are crying, people are stressed and they're like, well, you're not stressed? I was like, not going to die, <laughs> you know, yeah. not going to fail my friends. I've, this isn't scarier than the World Cup, so I'm just going to enjoy this. But one of the things that we notice about our risk-taking friends, and I think you just brought that up with your father, is you, know, you and I share a commonality. My dad flew F4s. Um, you know, he was an F4 driver too, and was was not in my life from a, for obviously a radically different reason. But you know, one of the things, do you think that there is because there was a a childhood trauma or a missing piece that you know there was no boundary set for you? Because some, sometimes I I wonder if. You know, we risk taking is a habit, and that we get exposed. And then if you if you're not sure if there's a limit, or if there's not sure that there, you know, what I mean, we're, do you always feel like there was some component of of dad not missing there that is this key element to you being so successful at risk taking? Mm, you know, it could be a component of it because you know, since he wasn't there, you know, my mom raised us as a single parent. And so my sister and I kind of had to fend for ourselves, which meant if you lock yourself out of the house and you can't get in after school or you forget your lunch or, you know, you forget to set your alarm. So we had to sort of learn some independence pretty quickly. Um, Me too. And kind of kind of figure some things out. And, and I do think that that helped us. I don't think it's not, it's necessarily because a father figure wasn't there, but the just the reality of everyday life of kind of being a kid out on your own is like, all right, I better figure this out. Or you fall and scrape your knee and, you know, you go clean it up and find a Band-Aid on your own. So I, I do think that that's helped me. Do you think that, uh, I mean, your mom is clearly a pretty awesome woman. Do you feel like her stoicism and her ability to sort of deal and manage, is that a learned trait? Because I look at my daughter's modeling Juliet and there is this way in the world about being where you are, you know, you're organized and you do the work and you show up and you're consistent. And I know you got, I mean, your mama, you, you didn't become Rebecca Rush just by yourself. But, uh, you know, I, I wonder how much do you think of this as always learned from our parents and that the risk taking or the, the fear or the or just the, the resources of doing that somehow is is related to our parents. It's for sure related to your environment, which is very much your parents. And, you know, if you, if your parents are always afraid and, oh no, don't do that. Don't do that. You might get hurt. Or, if, or if parents are like you guys, you know, it, we are what we know and kids are such sponges and they will, you know, adapt to the situation they're in. So if they're in the situation where mom and dad are just like, yeah, come on, we're going to do this. Oh, it's cold. Okay. Grab another jacket. Instead of like, oh no, don't go outside; it's too cold. Um, well, so I, they are—they're going to become what they what they're exposed to. And I, I'm not trying to reach here, but I mean, your mom was a, a wife of a military veteran, mm -hmm. you know, and KIA, and you know, at some point, like she had to learn how to deal. 
and you know she has two daughters and here we go and what's interesting is this conversation you have about self-talk and positive self-talk because your mom obviously learned that she had to you know she had to do some self-talk we're getting through this here we go and you know you self-talk plays a large role in your own personal experience and your process can you talk about that self-talk yeah well i mean so yeah mom i'll just jump back to mom really quickly um she did have to teach herself because because we were there it's part of like not letting your team down you know she had to just kind of buck up and what i did learn from her for sure is there there were no boundaries for women and that has definitely affected me of like she went to work she had an office job and it's like okay well that's what you do like there was never so i think that's helped me not put constraints on myself um and then self-talk yeah we'll go back to self-talk because i there's something here that um so Will Gadd has a he he has a a phrase he uses um, the power of negative thinking, and this is very much I'd say that I'm probably a pretty negative um, person lacking in confidence in my abilities, and I to Will's point that serves you well as an athlete because you never think you're good enough you never think you've trained enough um, you should be do more you suck you know um, all those things that we might say to ourselves. Um, Sometimes that can be motivating for an athlete to work harder on those cold days or they're alone and they don't want to do their training. Um, so there is power in thinking you could be better. Um, but then it turns the table, you know, when you're in a race situation and then the negative talk is coming up and then it's hurting us. And so there's always a dance in my head and Juliet talked about it a little bit when she had to pretend, you know, to be confident as a raft guide in front of all these people we can pretend to be that confident person to ourselves too. It's a little harder, but if even if you say out loud, "I can do this," then you can you can um, maybe trick yourself into actually thinking you can. Or it's like saying, if you just start smiling, you know, um, you'll start to feel better. So it's just trying to make that negative talk turn into positive talk. And I haven't mastered it yet, for sure. There's always the little devil angel on on each shoulder talking, both talking one in each ear. Me either. So when you um, when you master it, could you let me know? Because uh, I'm exactly the same way. You girls need less hugs and more like, bros, dudes, hug. <laughs> <laughs> I got this. Oh, I don't know why I lost. Um, <laughs> I, can I just say one really quick story, which isn't really that relevant? But, you know, this reminds me a little bit. I don't know why when you were talking, I was thinking about Sue Norman. I mean, Sue Norman is like the like the most Frady this is one, this cat. This one of your team members. One of our teammates. Like Frady cat people I would swim. ever describe. She can't really swim. She's a national she's, champion slalom paddler. She's afraid of planes and like getting cold. And like she is the most afraid person. Like she makes you and I look very stoic. And yet she has done these amazing and extremely scary things in her life, right? So anyway, I just had to bring up Sue Norman somehow. I thought of her and how amazing it is that you can be a wuss and still do all these things. Let me, let me ask you this Beck. You, um, are on the, on so much on the, on the, the literally the bleeding edge of these adventure sports, um, action sports, which really came about as we grew up in our twenties, we were literally in the heart of whitewater kayaking and the Renaissance of climbing the Renaissance of, of adventure racing. I mean, we, I mean, these things really just kind of grew up around us really, you know, we became conscious of it. Recently, I remember I was, we were talking to uh, the snowboarder Jeremy Jones, and mm-hmm. and he was talking about 
how comfortable and how skilled people have gotten because because these little steps have been taken a million times and people are like you say these best athletes are so extremely prepared it's impossible to see all that in the moment when they're doing these what seems like insane things but he was like hey at some point our skills literally go so far that we're so competent that we're going to put ourselves in situations where we get killed and you know the example was he was standing there talking and then Travis Rice snowboarded down a six six steep line and then just hucked a backflip on this big thing and Jeremy's like yep there you go where does he go from there you know where are we going if you know on the on the line that was unrunnable two years ago someone's now throwing a backflip in the middle of it because that wasn't a risk Travis is one of the most prepared athletes I know he's he's so technically excellent does do we lose the fear mechanism some point is is it is it protective i mean does it ever go away is it you know i mean where are we going in the the sporting world and in sort of our relationship with fear it never goes away it just goes to a higher level like you said you know you might have not been afraid to do a backflip and then you you're afraid to do a backflip with a twist you know but the fear never goes away it just gets pushed further out but then it's the question where we're going it's like if if an athlete's addicted to the fear, you know, and they actually need to keep pushing further and further and further to actually have that feeling. Um, or if someone like me, I would say I'm not addicted to the fear because I don't actually enjoy being afraid. I don't think anyone so, enjoys no. being afraid. I know the best athletes, I know they I don't, don't enjoy like it. it. In fact, if they're afraid, I think all the alarms start going off for people like, I'm afraid something's wrong. Do you think there's an addiction, though, to hit close to that right before that feeling? <sighs> and maybe that's yes. why they're going to push the tricks harder and harder and harder and harder. Well, I, I think you know, when we start talking about flow state and the relationship with uncertainty and fear and putting ourselves in situations where we're forcing our body to react, I think that's absolutely a, a normal expression of that. I, you know, I wonder, you know, my father had an addiction, addictive personality, substance abuse problems his whole life, and I didn't drink till I was 23. Like, literally never had a drink of alcohol, never had done any drugs, 23 but I'll guarantee you, I had hucked myself off of more scary things by the time I was 23. And I wonder if, you know, was I self-medicating and are some of our, you know, thrill seeker friends not self-medicating with an adrenaline fear? Because that's, that's a bad dump. But with the, with the clarity and the release that comes from heightened awareness. Because I think that the, the problem with fear is that it has a lot of con negative connotation. But let me give an example. Just the other day, um, we were in the gym. And uh, an urban camper who was tweaker, he was a, a guy, obviously tweaker, he walked into the gym and started behaving very strangely. And my internal alarms whoop, just went off and I was up at 10. And I was like, but I was lucid. I knew where I was. I, you know, I, I grabbed an improvised weapon. You know, I, the guy wanted to have an altercation and I just guided him out. And, and I, I wonder, you know, the physical practice and and also looking for that because we know that there is, like you say, there's a better, better experience of myself on the other side. There, there is something to that. I think you're right. I think, I think I keep putting myself in situations where I, I want to see, you know, I paddled Molokai and now I'm like, oh, I wonder if I can paddle Molokai in a different boat. I wonder if I can, you know, and I keep adding a little bit of the unknown because that makes it interesting. I think, it, it is, and I, I also agree. There's absolutely an endorphin release that athletes are after. That feeling of, you know, that feeling of flow, or right before you're scared, but knowing that you're totally alert, you're absolutely doing the thing you're good at. That's a super addictive moment to feel. 
and I do think that it's a drug in a way. And do, do you healthy. Th- do you, do you, I have really tried to work hard on conjoining the experience now if I have to have a tough conversation with someone or like mm-hmm. call my mom when I'm upset or something you know, with her. <laughs> like I now I'm like, good. I know what this is. This is me practicing all of that stupid outdoor stuff so that I can actually be a functional human. You know what I mean? Like, like me being comfortable with my feelings to tell Juliet that I'm upset. Like that's mm-hmm. real fear. And I think sometimes we don't connect those dots, but we need to do a better job of, of going back and forth. That's true. And I, yeah, it is true. It's, I, and who I am and the way my brain's working. Yeah. When I'm physically moving and out on a bike and in that zone is very different than when I'm sitting at a desk and, trying, you know, trying to write a story, for example, what I find is really interesting when you try to bring your flow state or your, what you learned in a physical sense to everyday work, um, sometimes working harder or trying harder or staying longer isn't actually productive as, and doesn't show you immediate results as it would in the physical realm. Like if you train harder in the gym, you're going to see results. But when I was writing my book or trying to write, for example, in a creative process, the harder you try, it doesn't actually yield results. And I find that really interesting. Sort of junk mileage, junk work mileage. That's why the Swede, yeah. that's why the Swedes have gone down to a six hour work day. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you know, one of the things that's interesting is, um, you know, and this, and this is a little bit of deviation from fear, but a little bit not because in this preparation for fear of unknown, one of the things that we see a lot, a lot of athletes set themselves up for is they set themselves up for an easy walk out of the grand Canyon. And that is, if I get injured or I break, as long as I can put point back to the amount of work I've done, it's like I, it's fake preparation. You know, well, look how much work I did. So it's not my fault I got injured or, you know, look and, and a lot of what I hear you saying is like this, this mental game and sort of meta awareness of fear states and self-talk is, is 50% of the rule, not just preparation on the other side. I think it's the next, yeah, brain training. And we've done some really interesting stuff with Red Bull um, on this realm. But I think, yeah, the the brain absolutely is sort of the missing link for a lot of people and the most trainable part. It's really easy to do the reps or do the miles or, you know, spend the time on your bike. Those, the physiological, you know, studies are all there. It's the the brain is the next untapped um, zone of how do we train our brain to be stronger that way. And I think it's why you know, m- more mature athletes or older athletes are still so good because they've had the brain training over the years. So trying to expedite that maybe with, with video games or whatever it is so that you don't have to wait till you're in your forties to be a really well-seasoned athlete. Maybe you can learn that in a shorter amount of time. Maybe that's the future of training for sports. Hey, thanks for that. I still, I still, I still can get better. I still get adventures. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You can train your it's brain. It's true though, because you know, even when I watch the CrossFit games competitors, and I see a lot of them, they're so young and they break down emotionally. And I think to myself, geez, if only my body could do that mm-hmm. now with my, the, my current mental state and the 22 year old body, yeah. you know, wouldn't that be the, yeah. we would all be superhuman at that point. Anyway, this, this is really a conversation about consciousness and self-actualization. I love it. Putting yourself yeah. into situations where you can be surprised and give yourself a chance to sort of rise above, rise above the, the, the animal self, you know, pulling our hand out of the box from fear of what's in there versus keeping your hand in the box and being, being surprised. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, Rebar, thank you so much um, for your time and, <laughs> and, and being, and I, I, and I being just, an awesome human. If people could, if we could just put like a one minute highlight 
of your sketchiest moments for the last 20 years, I think people would immediately go pale. They'd poop their pants. Like they'd be like, yeah, this like is a fake. One this is, uh, yeah, just a montage yeah. of sketchy situation. Yeah. We value guys, you value you so much. And thank you so much for uh, being so vulnerable and, and talking about this process because it's, it's important. And, and by the way, our daughters are coming to Rebecca Rush Fantasy Life Camp. Oh, Fantasy, yes. Georgia, awesome. Georgia's coming to Fantasy Mountain Biking Camp. Perfect. She doesn't know it yet. Make, yeah, come for real. Don't be fantasy. Do it for real. <laughs> well, I mean, it's fantasy. No, it's because a fantasy because it, it's you. It's you. That's it's, the it's fantasy the, part. It's the dream. You get, yeah, you get that's the train. fantasy part. Well, I will. They, I'll do training camp for your girls. Send them out here. Yeah. Well, no, we'd have to come. We'd <laughs> oh, have to okay. come. You could come too. We're gonna have to toughen them up first. <laughs> and then that's Kelly so and good. I will just drink lattes in your house while you go mountain biking with them. Great. It sounds okay. great. It sounds sounds great. <laughs> anyway, thanks, girl. We so appreciate it. Big that love. Really Big love. Thanks, Reba. Thanks for the chat. See ya. Okay, love you. Miss you. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Ready State. If you like what you're hearing, check out all of our episodes here or at mobilitywad.com. The Ready State is the podcast of mobilitywad.com, where we've assembled the world's most comprehensive database of guided movement mechanics and mobility videos, all with the goal to help improve performance and eliminate pain. Each motivated by the simple idea that all human beings should be able to perform basic maintenance on themselves. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under mobilitywad. That's W-O-D as in workout of the day. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it. You better stop it. You got it. Kelly Starrett is a New York Times bestselling author of Becoming a Supple Leopard and Ready to Run. He's a coach, a physical therapist, an athlete, and an innovator who works with elite athletes as well as everyday people who just want to be healthier and happier in their lives. Juliette Starrett is a co-founder and CEO of both San Francisco CrossFit and Mobility Wad, co-founder of StandUpKids.org, a writer, an entrepreneur, and a world champion athlete. Our theme music was provided by Rogue Wave. You got it. You stop it.